Well, church, what if I told you that your life would be marked by great power and impact and influence in this world? What if I told you that you could touch hearts and minds, you could make a difference? I think as people of faith, many of us resonate with that. We want that, don't we? We want to make a difference. What if I told you that that same power, that same impact, that same influence would be mingled with great sacrifice, great personal cost to you? Would you still be interested? We think of examples of folks that, whose lives were marked by both of these things, a mingling together of impact and suffering, great costs. I think of folks like Martin Luther King Jr., a man of faith, a minister of the gospel. That's how we started out. But of course, the man that became the voice of the civil rights movement in this country. A man whose life made a tremendous impact, tremendously powerful influence in our society, but a man who also experienced great sacrifice, cost of his own life. Or I think of a guy like Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a leader in what was called the Confessing Church in Germany when the Nazi party was rising up. And this Confessing Church was different than the compromised National Church of Germany. And Bonhoeffer and others resisted Hitler's regime, resisted Hitler's agenda. And he, along with many others, worked hard to resist this evil that was unfolding and called the church to do the same. But eventually Bonhoeffer was imprisoned and executed in a concentration camp for his message and his work. So these are famous examples, but we think of the different ways that in our own lives we try to make an impact in this world. We try to make a difference. We try to speak truth. And that may be met with sacrifice, some cost to us. Well, it's precisely that, that power and impact mixed with suffering that seems to be the destiny of these two witnesses that we look at in Revelation 11. Their prophetic ministry their message, as we're going to see in this book, is earth-shaking, forceful, life-changing. People either got on board or they resisted. But this impact <clears throat> came at great cost. Revelation 11 is a, it's a very difficult text very challenging text. There's a lot to try to untangle, to try to understand, to try to wrap our heads around. But I think that as we, as we faithfully lean in, as we try to faithfully understand what's going on here, I think there's more relevance for us, for you, for us as the people of God than you might imagine. So this morning, to help us Try to make sense of this, I'll do a good bit of explaining, explaining some of what's going on. What, what's, what's happening here? What do these things indicate? What do they signal? But then from what we learn, try to draw some applications for us as well as God's people in this age. But first, let us pray as we turn to this challenging text. 
God, we thank you again for bringing us in front of your word this day. God, would you give us wisdom? Would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to receive what you have for us? Lord, would nothing less than what your Holy Spirit desires for us be done in our hearts today? Lord, we open ourselves now to your word that we may understand and believe and receive. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, just a little orientation to kind of where we find ourselves in the book. We've been in this series for a few weeks now. And chapters 10 and 11 are part of an interlude, a pause, a break in the action. And in chapter 8, we move from the seals that we started to see opened, and we move to the trumpets. And just as a reminder, maybe if you're just jumping in on this series, in Revelation, we encounter seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven bowls. These are, these are judgments of God on this world. These are wake-up calls for us, for the people of this world. And, and some of these judgments, some of these seals, trumpets, bowls that we've described, we argue these occur throughout history. These have been uh, what, what we encounter in this age and what God's people have encountered in this age. Calamities and phenomena happening, all these sorts of things that unfold. But some of these seem to describe kind of an intensification as we near the end. And the intensification of these judgments before Christ's return. And these trumpets that we are in this interlude of sound very much like the plagues of Egypt. Those plagues that God sent on Egypt and on Pharaoh, whose heart was hard, who refused to let God's people go from their slavery, from their oppression. And so in these trumpets of chapters 8 and 9, seas turn to blood, water gets Poison becomes bitter. Darkness increases on the earth. Destructive demon locusts arise from the abyss. That's a nice, cozy image. And these demon locusts, they bring plagues of fire and smoke and sulfur. Wild stuff. But just wake-up calls sent upon the earth. Chapters 10 and 11 are between the sixth and the seventh trumpet. And so again, we're in this interlude. Last week with Pastor JP, we saw the beautiful picture of the 144,000 that are described in Revelation 7. And they are, that, that, that multitude is marked, is sealed by God. And the purpose there is that they might be spiritually preserved, that their faith might be protected that their salvation is secure even as they face tribulation, persecution. We have to remember that this letter was not first written to us, but to a church and churches in the first century. And John receives these visions, and, and it, this letter is distributed to these churches to encourage them, to rebuke them, but to encourage them, to challenge them, and to call them to faithfulness in Christ. And those churches may have already been experiencing persecution, tribulation, trials. 
And of that 144,000 that we encountered last, last week, that, that, that beautiful picture, we, we explained that that's not a literal number, but that it describes the fullness, the, the, the wholeness, the completion of God's people, his redeemed people, of which we become a part by faith in Christ. And that, that number, that multitude is, is sealed and is delivered and brought through their tribulation to then live with Christ and his kingdom. So there's a sealing, there's a, a marking. And I would say to you that what's happening in these first couple of verses of chapter 11 is something similar to that. And so in verse 1 of the text, as we look at verse 1, chapter 11, we see that John, is, is he, he's not just seeing this vision, he's in some way invited to participate in it. John's told, go and measure the temple of God and the altar and count the worshipers there. Many scholars believe that Revelation was written right toward the close of the first century, some 90, 95 A.D. And so what's significant about that as we try to understand and orient ourselves to Revelation is that by that time there was no longer a temple in Jerusalem. What had happened in the year 70 AD, perhaps 20, 25 years before John receives these visions, is that that temple is destroyed, leveled by Roman armies. And so this isn't an invitation to measure a physical space. Something different is going on here. And, and the rest of the New Testament helps us understand a new temple. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians 2, speaking of the church, the, the, the body of Christ, he says, in him, which is in Christ, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. So Paul describes the church as a, a body with many members, stones being built together into God's house in which he dwells, the temple. And then 1 Corinthians 3, something similar, Paul says, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is sacred, and you together are that temple. And so what's happening here? What's happening here is a, is a measuring of the people of God the church, the redeemed people of God. And this measuring implies ownership. You know, we, we, we measure properties to lay out and to say, this is what I own, this is mine. Something similar is happening here. This sense of measuring pops up in other places in the Bible, and when we see that, there's, there's a, a sense of divine protection, divine preservation around that which is being measured. And so just like in chapter 7, just as the people of God there are sealed, are marked, that they might be preserved and brought through tribulation, that their faith might stand, here we have God's people being preserved, being protected through their tribulation. So that's the temple. What, what, what's going on, though, in verse 2? Verse 2 is interesting. It says, but exclude the outer court. Don't measure that because it has been given to the Gentiles 
they will trample on the holy city for 42 months. Well, I believe the best explanation of what's going on here is that, is that while God provides that protection, that preservation, while our salvation is secure, our faith is held fast through tribulation, whatever may come at us, that does not mean that we are not vulnerable to harm, to physical attack, to persecution in this world and in this age. And that's the trampling described there. Trampling of the holy city. We shared the statistic in a recent sermon that one in seven Christians across the globe faces high levels of persecution and intimidation because of their faith. The countries in which they live are hostile. It's dangerous to be a Christian. That is not our experience, but it's the experience of some 350 million believers in this world today. Economic hardships, marginalization, imprisonment, people getting disowned from families, beatings, death. And so segments of the church are being trampled even today. And so we, of course, pray for them. And so there's this temple which is measured, but there is this holy city which is trampled upon, it says. And the the church, which is this temple of God, this people of God, though though we live on earth, we are members of a heavenly city. We are citizens of a heavenly kingdom. And so we too form the holy city. And that holy city God will one day fulfill on this earth when Christ comes again. And so temple, holy city, references to the collective people of God. So now we get to the two witnesses. These two witnesses. Well, who are these witnesses? Are they, are they individuals? Are they future? What are we talking about here? Notice how verse 4 describes them. They are the two olive trees and the two lampstands, and they stand before the Lord of the earth. We've encountered the term lampstand before in Revelation. It might, might ring a bell. Revelation 1.20, we see that, that this picture of Jesus Christ walking among the lampstands. Seven lampstands in that opening vision. And that's interpreted to say that the seven lampstands are the seven churches. The seven churches. And of course, chapters 2 and 3 are letters addressing those seven lampstands, the seven churches. And so consistent with how the term's already been used in Revelation, it's, it's fair to understand these two witnesses, again, as the collective people of God but as the people of God who are a prophetic voice, who are witnessing to another kingdom, to another hope, to another world to come in this age. So what do they witness to? What, what, what do we witness to in this world, in our own lives, in the body of Christ across the globe? We witness to Jesus who saves and who delivers and who will come again. Quick word, real quick, about the duration, the period of time mentioned here. These numbers kind of get us caught up sometimes. But something's going on here. It's, it's, it's telling us something about 
this period of time. As we've already seen, numbers in Revelation are often best understood symbolically or figuratively. And so these are no different. And so in Revelation, we encounter a few different formulas like this. We encounter 42 months, 1260 days, three and a half years, or a time, times, and half a time. A time, times, and half a time. And I don't believe that these are precise chronological periods of time, but they're symbolic. That, that, that there is a limited period of time in which God's people would be persecuted. The same time at which they are called to be a prophetic witnessing community in this world. But God will bring that to an end at some point. In these periods of time that we encounter, which can feel confusing, what do we, what do we make of this? We have to look to the Old Testament. The book of Daniel. Daniel has his own crazy apocalyptic visions. If you, if you think Revelation has, has a monopoly on all the crazy visions, look to Daniel, look to Ezekiel, look to these prophets. And so Daniel has his own visions, his own apocalyptic visions of beasts, four beasts that are described. And these beasts we understand as world powers that rise up to trample God's people. Daniel 7.25 says this, of this fourth beast that he sees. He will speak against the Most High and oppress his holy people and try to change the set times and the laws. And the holy people will be delivered into his hands for a time, times, and half a time. So many scholars say that, that what's going on here with these durations, these periods of time, mentions that this is just a standard way of saying a closed period of time, a limited period of time in which God's people will experience persecution. The point is that in this age that we are in, as we're arguing, there is this both trampling and there is this most powerful ministry in this world. The gospel progresses and advances and the church faces suffering and persecution. But as we see, God will bring that to completion in his time. So, so just to review, what are we seeing here? What, what is the what is summary of what we're seeing here? Revelation 11 describes the church, the people of God, spiritually preserved and protected, though still vulnerable to persecution and hardship, so that they might stand as a prophetic truth-telling witness in this age. That is a, a summary, if you will, of what we're seeing here. And that is key for understanding what follows from this and key for understanding what's going on in Revelation to begin with. So what then flows out of that? What are, what are three more things that we see about this, these two witnesses describing the people of God? First, people of God are empowered. People of God are empowered. Secondly, the people of God are persecuted. And last, the people of God are restored and resurrected. So first, the people of God empowered. We're told right away in verse 3 that these two witnesses, they are empowered. They are given power. And boy, don't they need power to face what they're going to experience. To speak their message, to stay faithful, to be truth-tellers in this age, in the face of opposition. 
And so they're given power. But then, but then sort of these crazy things issue from that power. Verse 5, we see that fire comes from their mouths to consume their enemies. That's a nice, cozy image, isn't it? Fire comes from their mouths to consume their enemies. Again, figurative language. The, the gospel, as it goes forth, as we are truth-tellers, it is fire. It is power. It either purifies, it either leads people to God, or it is a torment to them. And we even see that in those who look upon their dead bodies in a, in a, in a moment. But what, what's, what's happening here, this, this, this consuming that comes, against, it comes upon the enemies of God, it's probably a reference to the, just the judgment which enemies of God and of his church just heap on themselves in this life. As they attack the church, as they come against God's people and his purposes, these judgments they will feel in some measure in all that unfolds, in all the judgments that come against this world. But will we will be fulfilled in the end when God ultimately destroys all of his enemies. And so these enemies, these, these, those who will come against God and his purposes, I, I think Paul in some way describes in Romans chapter 2, verses 5 and 8. Paul says there, But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself, against yourself, for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. Verse 8, For those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. The other thing that we see about these empowered witnesses in verse 6 is that these two witnesses have an Elijah-like and Moses-like ministry. There's, there's things about their ministry which seem very similar to what we see of some of these prophets. So Elijah, if you're not familiar, a great prophet of the Old Testament, a prophet raised up by God to 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 judge and to call a nation back to God, who prophesies against wicked kings and the people who drift with them into idolatry. And what does Elijah do in, in his ministry? One of the things that happens is that Elijah prays that it wouldn't rain for three and a half years as, as a pronouncement of this judgment, and it does not rain for three and a half years. Elijah calls down the judgments of God. But then the two witnesses are Moses-like prophets. There's language of calling down plagues, and Moses, of course, called down the plagues on Egypt and on Pharaoh, whose heart was hardened and who refused to let God's people go. And so Moses-like, Elijah-like ministry and message. What's the point? The point is that the church, we, of, of which we belong, the people of God in this world who are being measured, who are being marked, who are being sealed, the church's prophetic witness in this world is tremendously powerful. Tremendously powerful as we speak light into a dark world. And enemies of the gospel, enemies of God's purposes are only inviting judgment on themselves which they may feel in this life, and finally in the end when God destroys his enemies. 
So it's clear that the people of God are empowered. But what's just as clear is that the people of God are persecuted. People of God are persecuted. Verse 7 introduces a beast. The beast. Verse 7 says, Now when they have finished their testimony, the, the two witnesses have now finished their testimony before the Lord and in this world, the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them and overpower them and kill them. The, the Greek here is literally that the beast will make war on them. The beast will come against God's people. A little bit later in Revelation, we're going to encounter a dragon and a beast. And the dragon is Satan. The dragon is an image of Satan. And the beasts are rulers, are kingdoms, are powers in this world inspired by this dragon. Animated by this dragon. This had a very real relevance in John's day. John is writing this letter. He is in the Roman Empire. And so Rome, in ways, was beast-like. As you have emperors like Nero and Domitian persecuting the church, killing Christians. In our day, it's all sorts of evil establishments. Beast-like establishments that carry out the purposes of Satan. ISIS. North Korea, even forces in our own society that are inspired, satanically inspired, that come against God's church and his truth. And so this beast, this beast has throughout history come against God's people. Christians have died at the hands of the beast and these oppressive powers. Churches have been destroyed. People have tried to suppress and destroy the ministry message of the church. Throughout time. The image here is that as this beast arises and overpowers and kills these two witnesses, that people gloat over this. They exchange gifts and they, they rejoice in what has happened. The apparent downfall of these two witnesses. We have here an image of, of an ungodly world gloating over the demise of these witnesses, celebrating because their message and their ministry in this world had in some way been a, a torment to them. This message of salvation and, and judgment in Christ is experienced by some as a torment, and so they celebrate. But this, this, this gloating, this, this graphic description of this gloating, this celebration after these two witnesses are killed is short-lived. The witnesses minister uh, in, in a fixed, limited period of time. That trampling occurs in a fixed, limited period of time, which some describe as three and a half years. But this gloating lasts only three and a half days. It's short-lived. God will vindicate his faithful people. And so that leads to our last one, the people of God restored and resurrected. Look at verse 11. But after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and terror struck those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies looked on. 
And so those who, who God has measured, who he has preserved, protected, marked, sealed, they come through their tribulation. And they are raised again. Those who look on, many of them thought that they had dealt with the problem. They had silenced this movement. They had silenced these witnesses. But suddenly they realize in terror that God is actually with them. And God is coming in judgment. And so however much their, their, their message and their ministry felt like a torment to their soul as they resisted Christ and his church, they recognized that their message will come to pass. These verses 13, 11 through 13, they, they likely capture the, the final events, the, the very final events of history when Christ returns. And what happens on that day is that the, the dead in Christ are raised, are resurrected. Others who look on at, at what's happening turn to God in true repentance as they see what unfolds, but others remain enemies of God and of his people to the very end, and they're destroyed. For them, the return of Christ is the fulfillment of the torment that they have felt during the ministry of the witnesses. So the people of God, the church of God, a prophetic witnessing community, empowered, persecuted, but who will one day be raised and restored again. It's an intense image. This, this whole book is intense. So what, what, do we, what do we even do with this? What does this mean for us? Well, first we see and we observe that the, the trajectory of the church, the progress of the church, the path of the church, the redeemed people of God, a witnessing community in this world, will mirror the trajectory of Jesus himself. Jesus, of course, a powerful, truth-telling voice and ministry in this world, even in the face of persecution. Jesus, who dies on a cross, who, who appears in that moment defeated, but then who rises again in vindication, resurrected in power and glory. So the path of the church may look like the path of Jesus himself. But another, another takeaway that I was just so struck by this week as I was just wrestling with, with, with this text is begs a question of us, begs a question of you. And the question is, is our view of the church too small? Is our view of the church too small? You see, is, is the church for us just a, a, a nice community, a, a cozy place, a place that we come and feel a bit better about ourselves? Or is it a powerful, prophetic, truth-telling force in this world? Well, if Revelation 11 is any indication, we are that powerful force in a dark world. Jesus says in Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That is the church that Jesus Christ has established, that he is sustaining, that he will bring through tribulation and raise us again one day. 
If you've been in a church for any period of time, you know that churches have issues. Churches have problems. Believe me, those of us that work for them, we are aware of those problems of the church. But, but my point is to say to you that this, inspired by this vision, we're called to love the church, pray for the church, invest in the church, big C church, this church, the church of Jesus Christ around the globe. Pray for it, serve it, invest in it, believe for it that God might accomplish a mighty work through us, which is his plans and purposes for us. One final thing. We're, we're, we're looking at these two witnesses, the, those who are raised up, empowered, though persecuted, to speak truth into this world. And we're taking this as the church, but there's implications for us as individuals too, isn't there? For you as an individual, as you go about your life in this world as a person of faith, seeking to be faithful to Christ, seeking to help other people connect with Jesus. As we live our individual lives as a faithful witness, we may feel defeated. We may feel set back. We may feel resisted in our ministry in this world, but we take heart, knowing that this is the story. This is how it plays out, and we take heart knowing that God is with us. And that we're called to be faithful, to show up, to speak truth, and that God will one day vindicate his faithful ones. And so my prayer, my, I feel like my prayer is for me, but it can be a prayer for you as well, that in our lives we might live up to this calling, that we might be this powerful voice of truth in this world for God's glory, and that he might give us courage for that. Let us pray. God, thank you again for your word, Lord. Thank you that it penetrates us to every fiber of our being. God, we pray that you would help us. We pray that you might stir us and move us. God, we, we want everything that you intend for us as your people in this world. Thank you for your church. Thank you for the force that it is. For your kingdom. God, help us to play our part. Empower us this week and this day to be your faithful ones and your voice. In Jesus' name, amen.